Welcome to Dangerous Christianity with Dr. Christopher Rodkey, where we explore new ways of being Christian that go against the grain, stands up against the church when it's evil, speaks truth to power, and reclaims the Bible as a radical message of hope, liberation, and justice. Dr. Rodkey is pastor of St. Paul's United Church of Christ in Dallastown, Pennsylvania, and leads the sacred profane community, a post-faith gathering for those seeking to nurture a literate and misfit geeky, sometimes sneaky, as well as a queer-affirming and beer-affirming spirituality. All information mentioned throughout the program is listed in the show notes. And now, please welcome Dr. Christopher Rodney. In the first chapter of John, we got a glimpse into the early Christian community from which this letter, which we call First John, uh, is written, and we can draw some conclusions about what was going on in the early church. And I want to review a little bit of that. It's helpful to know what was going on in the early church today because it tells us a little bit about what the first Christians were like. It gives us some context of this Christianity uh, that was emerging during this time. And we can try, I think that we should try to be like the first church in our own way for our own time. And it's challenging to go back to the Bible in this way because what we often envision about the early church or what I was often taught uh, in the church about the first church uh, is usually a mechanism to say, this is what we should be doing, or this is why we're doing this the way we're doing in the church. I think though, if we let the words speak for themselves in their own context, uh, with knowing the history and the literature and the language of the time, I think it we find out very quickly that it's not quite what uh, what we're always taught. There's something else going on, and I actually think it's much more interesting uh, to look at the Bible that way. So in this sense, what we're doing here is a recovery mission. We're looking to the past, not to go back to the past, but to get some insight into where we might have gone wrong. In 1 John chapter 1, we hear about a religious community that apparently had some disagreement. Those who had left were certain that they were right about some things. Those who were left behind in the church were also confident they were right in the right, but they also emphasized that they can and not know the whole of the truth of the universe. It suggests that maybe those that left were making those kinds of claims. And the traditional reading of this text is that there was a group called Gnostics, who believe that they got some sort of special knowledge, which is what the word Gnostic means. Um, and so that, that seems to be what was going on. The, the problem is, is that it wasn't just for Christianity, but for Greek philosophy as well, that knowing a full sense of the capital T truth is not something human beings are capable of. In fact, in Plato's writing, there's a very clear indication that those who believe that they know the truth with a capital T or are convinced that they know the truth of uh, of the universe are not o- are quite dangerous in t- in terms of creating bad situations for for people. But but uh, they're just fools, and it's very easy to fool other people by showing others that you have this kind of knowledge. That's part of what's going on here. That's part of the backdrop here, uh, and and it's interesting that I I think the early church is taking a position that is siding with Plato and the way in which he spoke about these things. Although clearly there's something different going on in the, in the Christian scriptures than what's going on in Plato. But Plato was very much part of, of the scene and, and the, the literary context of the time. So while Jesus and the word of God is 
revealed truth to us and revealing to us, we are not the truth. We might be carriers or bearers or promoters of that truth or of that word, but it's a truth that's still unfolding and revealing itself to the world. This isn't a truth that's necessarily changing, but what we know about it is changing. Now, this is a very common kind of disagreement among uh, religious people. The one who is humble and says, I don't know the answer, or we could not know this in a philosophy, that's an epistemological claim that you're saying something that we could not possibly say as humans. Often when someone says that in a religious setting, that what you're saying is something we cannot know, uh, there's a quick accusation very regularly that uh, those people that that point out that others cannot make those claims are sinners. They're ignorant or, or even that they are being arrogant or pretentious when they are really actually saying, you know what, like that's quite a pretentious claim you're making there. In essence, sometimes people who are pretentious about themselves are very good at telling others that they're wrong about things. We all know that. But the difference here is that the, ch- that the church that has survived and seems to be remaining behind after an aftermath of some schism um, is, is struggling with, with being uh, left behind and feeling like maybe we weren't right about this, right? Maybe, and maybe if they're getting more followers and all these people have left, maybe we were in the wrong. Right, but we're but the point of the letter is that if we're working on this together, we have to acknowledge no one has the knowledge of God, but as a community, we are carriers of God, and that is consistent with what we know about Jesus. In the first chapter, we hear that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we don't sin, we make Jesus a liar, and God's word is not in us. The word of God is carried by those who are sinners and those who are, who are imperfect. This is often read to say that if you say you have no sin, uh, then you're pure. But if you say you have no sin, you're lying, right? We are all sinners. We are all impure. We are all, as individuals and as a community, imperfect. The sinners carry forward the word of God. That's an important subtlety going on here. The word of God, again, is carried by those who are sinners, carried by those who are imperfect. And there's this weird dichotomy going on here about perfection uh, and imperfection here. That that is a very subtle thing. And and I think the reason why it's hard to discern for us in in reading this with our modern ears and eyes uh, and listening with our ears is because uh, it is a subtle distinction being made in ancient times, too, uh, with all of their own contexts that are a little different than ours. So as we go into the second chapter, I want to talk about sin a little bit. We hear the word sin being used in two different ways. Sin is the state of being separated from God, and it can take different forms. We can think of sin as the laundry list of things that we do wrong, but sin is also the state of being human. Sin is what in theology we call ontological condition, ontological condition. Sin is the ontological condition of humanity. It is the state of being that we're in a state of sin. And by this, I do not believe the early Christians, when they talk about sin here, meant that you need to have original sin washed off of you like magic. Uh, But it was an acknowledgement that sin is a state of being more than anything else. No matter how good we are, we are still prone to sin. 
We all stand before God at all times in need of repentance and reconciliation, not because every single thing we do is sinful, but because by nature we're unaware of the harm we do, even unintentionally. This is a hard lesson for a lot of people, and we'll come back to in, in this book, but think of it like this. Most of us don't pay attention where our clothes are made, right? I have to acknowledge it. Putting on my shoes in the morning is an expression of my ontological condition of being sinful because it's quite possible that my shoes are made in sweatshops by children and workers who are exploited such that they might not be able to afford their own shoes, let alone the shoes that they're making that I'm wearing. This is all to say we, we live in a state of not always being mindful. We're not always being aware of what consequences our smallest actions have, like putting on our shoes in the morning, which is why you should pay attention to where your clothes are made, and you will be quite shocked if you pay attention to it. And I hope that makes some sense. It's hard to distinguish what we mean by sin. But here in the scriptures, we're talking about sin in a broad sense and also in a narrow sense, right? One speaks of an ontological condition. The other speaks of more individual items that we may may do. And I hope this explanation makes some sense as we now go into chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 from the NRSV translation. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the atoning sacrifice for sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now it's interesting that whoever's writing this, who's speaking from a position of authority, refers to the people in the church as my little children, which might indicate that the early ministers or bishops might have taken a title father in this new faith family. So he says, I write these things so that you might not sin. But clearly, if we take sin in the biggest sense, we can't avoid being sinful because that's what we are. This is consistent with some other things we know coming right out of Jesus's mouth, right? This, this might appear to be contradictory, but there is a subtlety of language going on here. When Jesus says in Matthew 5, for example, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Jesus is telling us to do something that is impossible. We should strive to be the best that we can be, but we also have to understand that we cannot be perfect. Jesus' command to be perfect is a little bit of an overstatement. Maybe it's even a riddle. People who think they can be perfect end up committing the sins. People who think they can are without sin are often the ones who are inadvertently producing lots of sin in the laundry list uh, item sort sense of sin. It's and that seems to be what this conflict is about in this early in the early church. So if you sin, and we all do, he says, you have an advocate. That's the good news. If you sin, now if you say you have no sin. You have an advocate, but maybe you don't recognize the need for one or the reality of one in your life. Continuing into verses 2 through 5. Now by this we can be sure we know him if we obey his commandments. Whoever says, I've come to know him, but does not obey his commandments, is a liar, and in such a person the truth does not exist. But whoever obeys his word, truly this person, tr truly in this person the love of God has reached perfection. By this, we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk just as he 
walked. Now, these words have been used throughout the history of the church to be to suggest that we can be perfect in this lifetime. In fact, just recently, someone emailed this to me. There's a big church near uh, near us outside of Harrisburg that's having a big conference uh, later this fall that is putting pastors on, on the pedestal and teaching people um, about how to attain perfection so that you can have the power to raise people from the dead. Now, when I saw this, I looked at some of these guys' websites, and uh, uh, it was quite impressive. In fact, on the website, even claimed that one of the people was uh, was a conduit of God's power in the raising of over 400 people from the dead. Right? We can disagree with that, right? I find that to be strange. Uh, but the teaching is that if you are perfect like Jesus, if you are like the word yourself, you may pre- perform raisings of the dead like Jesus. But that's not what we're called to be. Now, I'm not one to make a generalization that ideas are wrong, but I'll make that claim here. It's wrong to, and it's manipulative to believe that uh, pastors have the power to raise people from the dead. Um, I don't care how many people they say they've raised from the dead. And uh, uh, maybe the funeral industry uh, is by, is paying my way here to, to make me think that. But I think that's manipulative. I think it's exploitative. Um, I think this is exactly the kind of thing they're talking about here in 1 John. Not that people were saying they could raise people from the dead, but there was a belief that the power was specifically on groups of people or through specific individuals or communities with specific kinds of leaders or leaders who have a a particular kind of lightning rod for this power, right? Someone who's attaining perfection in this passage of scripture in 1 John is not really perfect in a literal way, but perfect in an imperfect way and paradoxical and messy way that Jesus commands us to be perfect. People can believe they're perfect and say they don't sin, and in so doing, they declare themselves to be the word of God. But those who are imperfectly perfect, if that's a phrase I can use, are the carriers of the word. Beyond this, the last line at the end of 5 and 6, as we just read, it says, we do this together, not as individuals. We do this together. We carry the word of God as a community. The Christian faith isn't about strict doctrine. It's not about authority. It's about walking with Jesus and walking with Jesus as our example, remembering that we can't be God, but we can walk with God. I know that's some complicated uh, distinctions here, perfect and imperfect, but I hope it makes sense. And we'll move a little more quickly now through through this chapter of, of this first letter of John. Uh, going into the next section. If you know your Bible well and you know the Gospel of John, we know John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word uh, was with God, and the Word was the light to all people, etc. You hear echoes of that as we go into verse 2, starting in chapter uh, chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new commandment that is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says I'm in the light while hating a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Whoever loves a brother or sister lives in the light and in such a person there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates another believer is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, does not know the way to go because the darkness has brought on 
blindness. So it seems that people have left the church because of these disagreements. It would have been it would have been enticing to believe that Jesus gives us keys to become gods or selves, or to become like gods or selves. In fact, if you go back to the early chapters of Genesis, the, the sins of the first humans are that they, they are like us, God says, right? Becoming like gods themselves. This would have been an attractive idea uh, and consistent with some of the other ideas going around uh, philosophically in the first century at this time. Why worship gods when you could become like one? And while we can agree that that's a wrong way of thinking and perhaps even dangerous way of thinking, it is the root of all idolatry, we have to be nice. Don't hate those who are taking religion in a different direction. Even if they have more people in their fold, even if they're taking people from your church, it might be that there aren't that many people left in the church. And we can see that 1 John is really trying to encourage this decimated community to keep moving forward in the faith and in trust. But he says, do not make the mistake of hating or shunning or speaking ill of those who have left. They might have done mean or hurtful things. It's not saying to deny those things or not to handle the consequences genuinely, but it's saying do not hate them. You might be faithful to Jesus. And if you're already humble and pious, but if you have hate on your heart, you're wandering in the darkness and your hate begins to shape the path that you walk. And then in 1 John 2, we break out into poetry which usually means we're quoting something. So this might have been an ancient song or a hymn of prayer that was recited. We don't know. Uh, We will hear hear these words again. Children, fathers, young people, this is all code. The children are, uh, and young people are the people in the church. We've heard this earlier in 1 John. The fathers are the leaders of the church. So we should note here that women may have been part of the leadership of the church of this time. So referring to fathers might include men and women, but that's, we're not entirely clear about that. Uh, and I do believe there were women in the early church in positions of leadership, but for this particular community, I don't think we can speak with any certainty. 1 John 2, starting in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, that is the church, because your sins are forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, that is the leaders, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young people, that is the church, because you have conquered the evil one. I write to you, children, that is the church, because you know the Father. I write to you fathers, that is the leaders, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young people, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, it's really interesting about this. If you're looking at the text, it might be helpful. Aside from this language of fathers and children, is that the instructions to the fathers or the leaders is the same every time it's said. It keeps repeating. And the children are the ones who are doing the extraordinary things. The fathers or the leaders may be wise, but the children are those who are forgiven and are conquering the evil one. The children, the church members, are the strong. They are the carriers of the word of God. The children know the father, right? This is about specialized knowledge. Some people might say they have higher knowledge than others, but the children are the ones who know God. I think what this means is that the leaders should be very clearly understood as counted as children, even though if they're called the fathers. The priests or the pastors or deacons or bishops are all equals with the layperson. It may be people who, the people who left, 
held a held a position of leadership where they were called fathers, and maybe that's why this is being emphasized. Or some of those who left were the fathers. I think that's quite likely. Um, but uh, I think the fathers inflated themselves to be like the father. Right. That's part of the wordplay here. The father should not be like the father. Right. Or like God themselves or believe themselves to be higher than others or somewhere between the, the people and God. The point here is that in this church family, some might have different roles, but we're all equals in this church and we're all equals in the eyes of God. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this chapter, but what I want to focus on today is the part about hate. Right? It might be easy to skip, skim over that. Now, if you're like me, we've all had people double cross us. We've had people steal from us. We've had people cheat, cheat on us. We've had our businesses cheated on. We've all had people who should have been faithful to us that are unfaithful to us. We probably all know people who are hateful, who are really hard to love. And I struggle with that like everyone else. In any if I don't carry that hate around in a sense that I want to retaliate, I still hold it in me. I know as the pastor, I'm supposed to model not carrying hatred for people, not being resent, resentful. But I'm modeling for you, I'm confessing to you that I'm modeling for you as my congregation uh, that I'm dealing with it. I'm dealing with it because it's hard. It's messy. Uh, we've all had things happen to us that are bad, uh, and it's hard to deal with. It. It's hard to carry around. And sometimes what we need to do is really talk about it, and we're afraid to talk about it because we know we're going to say something not kind, right? Or at least that's how I often feel. So I'm confessing to you that I struggle with this too. I hope you can help help me be a good model by struggling with it with me or supporting me with it because I know how much it can eat you up inside. But I'm not going to pretend that I don't deal with this. In fact, I'll be the first to say that I deal with this quite a bit. I also know that the path is overcoming it even as I'm dealing with it. And that's good news. I know that there's a way to pursue forgiveness, even if there are some situations I'm not really quite there yet. I'll be the first to say it. And that is that God is bigger than this. And we're called to a higher purpose that goes far beyond these things right now. Now, believing that God is bigger than this doesn't make it go away but we're called to place our eyes on something far greater and incomprehensibly beyond our wildest imaginations. We can begin by admitting that we ourselves are not gods, and we often act like we are, even if we are careful about it. We cannot be perfect even if we strive to be perfect. The possibility of just how radical and all-encompassing God and God's love is becomes even bigger the more I admit my shortcomings before God. When I believe that I've figured it out and that I do not sin, I hold back the possibilities that move beyond our most tremendous fantasies, which God inhabits. And I can affirm that hate is just a small drop in the ocean of love, even when it feels like it is over-encompassing everything I might think about at times. If I can just let go of it, it'll dissolve away but I have to let it go. And I have to recognize God in the face of the one that I'm struggling with because God loves them as much as me. And I need to pray for those who posture as my enemies, because if they are human, they're part of this family too. Even if they don't want to be, 
and they are not to be understood as my enemy. That hate drop, that hate can be a small drop in the ocean of God's love. First John's instructions to the fathers, the leaders of the church, what he repeats several times here in this last section is that you know him who is from the beginning. You are aware of him who is from the beginning. That's right. That's right. And you're not it. I'm not it. I'm not that God. I'm not on par with that God. The God who created all things heals all things while they decay in the meanwhile. If I can believe that God can create the universe, I must believe that God's plan for the end of the world will include my own healing as well. That might be a weird thing to think about, that I can believe that heaven and new earth will be, will be made, that heaven and earth collide, and that all things are made new. But I often think that my resentment and hate might not be part of that. I have to admit that that's going to be part of it. That if God can create the universe, I have to believe that God's plan for the end of heaven and earth colliding will include my own healing and Jesus' advocacy and atonement truly making me right with God. And that's where we're going next time, which is into what this means for the end times. Thank you for listening to Dangerous Christianity. For more information about how to get involved in the movement, how to contact Dr. Christopher Rodkey, or where to find information regarding his preaching itinerary, publications, or how to make a contribution to his ministry, please refer to the listed show notes. Dr. Rodkey, again, would like to thank all of his listeners for continuously supporting and tuning into his work and message. Thank you.